This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Our guest is Walker Meadows. Thanks for being on the show, Walker. Hey, Whitney. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Walker, let's jump into you know underwriting a mobile home park. And maybe you can use either a previous deal or something and you can kind of highlight, you know, how we go through this process, maybe just your process, uh, you know, of how you do this to, to ensure that, you know, this is a good investment or not. And, and maybe we'll talk about how you structure it a little bit, maybe what's different between mobile home parks and, you know, other asset classes that's specific to, you know, the numbers you're looking at. But get us started. E- either way, you know, previous deal or a fake deal, either one, if, if you don't have one, you can share yeah, I'll, I'll, it might be more helpful if I, I can just run through how we, how, like if we, if we come across a deal from a broker, wholesaler, or otherwise kind of soup to nuts, how we take it through the process. Please. And that might be helpful. Um, so the, you can kind of think of it as a filter. We kind of have multiple sniff tests that deals go through before they ever hit the underwriting model. And obviously there's, there's the preliminary filter where you're looking at a deal, you, you know, it just doesn't meet our criteria, but kind of the three things that we're looking for right out of the gate are park needs to have over a hundred pads. It needs to be city utilities. So no private wells or, you know, septic tanks, anything like that. And it, uh, it needs to be in a population with ideally at least a hundred thousand people and steady population increases. So those are kind of our, what I think of as our first layer sniff test that will filter out 90% of the deals, which originally folks think is bad, but we found that the more specific we can get with our criteria, the better, actually. The quicker you can get to a no on a deal is just as effective. It's just as important as getting to a yes because, you know, you only have so many hours in the day and you need to be able to filter down to the high-priority deals. So I'd say that's the first-level filter. And next-level filters, we take it through a full-blown sniff test, which is where we are looking into demographics of the market. We're looking at median income, median home value in the area down to the specific zip code and block level. We're looking at the economic kind of outlook for the area, job projections, and all the standard demographic criteria that you would expect probably in in, in the asset class, you know, kind of the the market drivers. And really the main one behind it all is like, is there going to, are there jobs there and will there be jobs there in the future? So will you have people to sell your product to? And then if it gets all the way through both of those, then that weeds out probably 99% of the deals. And so we're really only hyper-focused on the the 1% of deals that will, will check our boxes. And so at that point, basically when I came on board with Brandon, I, I rebuilt our entire financial underwriting model. And that's, that's what we currently use to, to underwrite deals. And so at that point, we're is that, f- is that an Excel sheet? I mean, yeah. something you've mastered or is that, okay, it is. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's an Excel spreadsheet. It's pretty complex behind the scenes, but it, we, we tried to make it very user-friendly on the front end so that multiple team members can use it, even if they're not getting a ton of reps on, on underwriting a deal. But I mean, if it gets to that point, we are getting full-blown financials from the broker, from the seller to the extent that we can, you know, we're getting rent rolls. We are having multiple phone calls with the seller and with the broker. Typically when it, for a deal, we take all the way through the underwriting process. I mean, it can take 10 to 15 hours soup to nuts before we get an offer out the door. 
And, and that's why it's so critical that we only let the high priority deals through to that point because we, we you can only get through so many. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you just look at my hours in the week, even if I work 80 or 90 hours a week, we could still only get so many offers out. So we got to be hyper selective on the front end, which was a learning curve for me. You know, I felt like we were leaving a lot of meat on the bone. I liked how you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said that the quicker you get to a no is is as effective as, as getting to a yes. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Because every, every second that you spend mulling over some deal that ain't going to work for you anyway is a second you could have spent evaluating a deal that is going to work for you. Oh, that's awesome. So, all right. So, so now you've found that one deal that, you know, meets all those, all that criteria, that 1%, right. And then now it's time to d- dig deeper. So has over a hundred pads, has city utilities population of at least a hundred thousand. You've checked the market out, you check the economic outlook, you know, there's good jobs there and jobs are going to be there in the future. Maybe you could say, mention one thing about what tells you that jobs are going to be there in the future. Is that a specific kind of job? What, what would tell you that? Yeah. I mean, we typically like to see Basically, when you look at the job outlook, you want to see a diversified job outlook, meaning that the area isn't super dependent on one singular Air Force base or one singular manufacturing plant to limit your risk there. And really, I mean, you kind of have just past job growth information and, and kind of ancillary information you can get from local economic development groups to, to project out into the future. You know, they say past data isn't always the best indicator of, of future performance, but to some extent, that's the best we have in, in, in this space. And so a lot of times you're using past population trend data, past job growth data, and any kind of projections you might can find online. Okay, so now you you found this deal. You know What documents do you already have to have gotten this far? Yeah, that's a kind of an interesting point to dive in on because especially in mobile home park, world, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of parts are still owned by what we call like mom and pop type of sellers. You know, they might be 70 years old, looking to retire. They've owned the park for 50 years and they might keep their books on a notepad of paper and that's it, you know, and, and that's, and that's what you get. And, and so, so that's kind of one extreme. Another extreme is a very professionally marketed deal through a large broker where you have a nice professional looking OM and you have a T12 financial statement along with the current rent roll. And a lot of times even additional information on top of that, you know, maybe prior years, um, financials as well. And uh, it really just depends on where the deal is sourced. Sometimes we, we don't have any of that information. We have to make some broad level assumptions. But ideally, we have at least a T12 and, and a rent roll to reference. Our guest is Mason Moreland. Thanks for being on the show, Mason. Hey, thanks for having me, Whitney. Pleasure to be here. Mason is a finance partner at Texas Vine Country, operator of Canton County Vineyards in La Mesa, Texas. He started out investing in residential real estate and used lessons learned there to tenaciously underwrite every business he came across as a deal, using this superpower to find untapped niches and people to make an impossible project a reality. It's interesting how you say untapped niches and people. Uh, So I hope we get into that. So Texas Vine Country has expanded Canton County Vineyards footprint by 483% in 2020, making it one of the largest vineyards in Texas. And Texas is big. Texas is big. <laughs> it's awfully big. Uh, and we'll open the most advanced custom winemaking facility in the state, Firm Forge, in the summer of 2021. Mason, thank you for your time. I welcome you on the show. Grateful to have you. Why don't you give us a little more about Texas Vine Country and what this is and vineyards. I mean, we haven't had too many people talk about vineyards before and why we should even know about that or that's even a thing to invest in. And maybe, you know, what Firm Forge is a little bit, what you all are up to. 
sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the only one I remember offhand is, is maybe Brandon Silveira down there in Central Valley, which he does some really cool stuff too. But yeah, Texas Vine Country, we're basically a partnership of folks that have all our own individual superpowers, right? The partnership is the original syndication. You go out and you find people that have the talent that you don't have or the resources that you don't have, and you come together to make what you can't do individually happen. It's sort of the culmination of a lot of, maybe not fortuitous, but events that were meant to happen over the last three or four years. I remember the very start of it was I was sitting in my bed with my wife, just hanging out one day. This was either right before or right after I had my first kid. And we were watching some movies. I started watching some wine movies. I thought, you know, wow, that is really cool. Those people just like hanging out on their estate in France. And that looks like the life. That's what I should do, you know? Texas has tons of land. It's fairly cheap. And when from there, I had a buddy that's been working with... They're both our partners now, who's a vineyard manager. And I called him and I said, Hey, I'm really interested in this vineyard thing. Can you teach me some more about it? Give me some numbers. Because you know I do real estate. You know We've got single-family homes, multi-family properties. And this is something that I like to analyze. So he got me a bunch of numbers and kind of explained how it worked. And I'm somewhat familiar with agriculture. I'm a wildlife biologist by trade. But just like I do with everything, I built a model and started trying to figure out how does this work. And I got to the end of that first model and I dialed up my buddy and I said, You are crazy. No one would do this. This is insane. You're either going to lose everything or you're going to make a lot of money. But it's not a whole lot of margin for error there. And we started looking into the why. You know, Why is it crazy? Where are the holes in this model that, that make it dangerous? Where are the risks? How do we plug those risks? Where do we need to find that? The way we got to where we are now is we found those people, we found the talent, we found the resources. Nice. You know, when you say making a model, what does that mean? Really just underwriting, right? It's what everybody calls it when you're going to finance. But you look at each step in the process. So if you're going to do something that maybe your audience is more familiar with, you have a multifamily property that's either off-market or on the MLS, and they have some sort of pro forma telling you what the numbers are, what the income is. It's the same exact thing. You build the life cycle of that business. I do it in Excel or Google Sheets. And you find where those risks are by playing with your variables. So that's what I've done forever. You know, I love getting in there and, and starting from scratch and building an organism you know, in Excel and figuring out where the holes are. That's so interesting. I'm thankful that there are people like you that enjoy that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot, you know, it must be genetic. My dad, he's a CPA and you know, I don't know if he enjoys spreadsheets. Man, is he good at them? And that's kind of rubbed off on me. Maybe I got the enjoyment of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I've heard so many times, even in this business, you know, to really learn underwriting, like build your own model so you can see where everything's coming from. Where, how do we get this calculation? You're going to know then that it took from this over here and it took from that or how that was exactly. calculated. But that was so tedious for us. You know, we were trying to do that. And that makes me nervous. Well, especially in Excel, I've messed up this one thing. Well, do I know it still works? And so just not my specialty. Thankfully, we do have somebody on our team that's extremely talented in that area. I guess walk us through that just a little bit. I love how you said, you know, look at each step in the process and then you just build the life cycle of that project. Makes it sound so easy, right? (laughs) Sounds way easier than it really is, right? So you end up with like a 50 spreadsheet. Right. And I know that even in 20 minutes, we can't unfold all of this, but let's dive into that a little bit and how you do that and what you're looking at. Some We're trying to build that sheet or build that model to figure this out because it's not like you're just doing multifamily time and time and time and time again. I mean, you're doing this for different businesses, different projects as well, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I start out with is I literally pull up a blank spreadsheet and I just do a brainstorm, you know, or even a notepad. And you got to think about the main things, right? You got to think about where's your income coming from? What's the timing of the income? How does the income change year over year or month over month? What's the variability in it? What are the risks there? Financing is huge, right? What structure are you going to use? That's really big in agricultural pursuits too, because you can tie financing to cash, you can tie financing to land, you can tie financing to the receivables. But the main parts are to take that, where's the income coming from? How are you servicing debt if you have it or any operating costs? I like to put them out on a timeline first and then build out from there. Okay. So income listed out numerous things you have to take into account there. And obviously the debt and financing, what else are you looking at? I mean, you know, if you're thinking of a vineyard versus a multifamily or some other type of completely different project, well, there's obviously lots of different variables there for each one of those. How do you even find those things, those variables or those risks or those things that you need to account for when it's maybe a project you're not as familiar with? If we were doing multifamily every day, well, then we understand most of the risks, majority of the time, I wouldn't ever say all the time, but majority of the time, we know we need to account for. But, you know, if you were to give me a vineyard right now and say, you know, underwrite this, I, I'd be calling you for sure. Where do you even go to figure out what other risks that you need to account for? Uh, this is a great question because that was the first brick wall that we hit, right? It's like, how do you figure out where your risks are? You know, obviously, you can take from your other experience in other industries and, and think of those risks, but really, they don't necessarily translate very well, like you're saying. So the first step is to see if somebody else has built a model out there, right? If you can find somebody else that's analyzed a similar deal and is willing to share that information with you, that is an incredible resource. Because first off, you can see, okay, what do they see as risks in this business, A, right? B, build your own model based off of whatever you can find or whatever information you can glean. Once you build your own model, you'll start to see by just playing with different variables going up and down, you're going to see what moves the needle the most on your margins, particularly the timing of your revenue and things like that. And then three, I think the most important is you got to go find people with that superpower you're missing. And for us, that was a couple different people, but particularly Rusty and Dustin on our team. They are both entrepreneurs and they are deeply, deeply involved in the great business in Texas. So they know offhand, what all equipment do I need? You know, the cost, I can dial somebody up on their cell phone right then and figure out what's the cost per T-post if I order 40 truckloads of T-posts. That kind of thing you can't just get if you're not in the industry, right? So you got to go find those people with that superpower, that talent, those resources. Yeah, and you refer to it as syndicating talent. I love that. Why don't you elaborate on that a little more while we're on that? And I'd love to come back to just the model stuff. Syndicating talent, was this something that your all's team finally learned one day and said, oh, you know, we got to find somebody that knows how to do this. You just hit a rock wall. Or was it just a matter of growing that you knew it had to happen? It definitely is a slow thing, right? You do it kind of step by step the first time until you have some retrospective where you can see like, uh, where did we mess up the first time? But when you do it the first time, usually, or for a brand new business, it's usually a step-by-step. So for me, it was more like, hey, I'm interested in this business. Let me find more information on the numbers, particularly like income, seasonality, you know, what are the mechanics of it? Just learn a little bit more about it. So like, you know, if you want to look into a coin-operated laundry, you'd go find somebody, you know, does it, does it fluctuate by season? What are the variables I need to look at? And once you find that first question, I have no idea how to proceed. That's when you pick up the phone. You got to start calling people. You got to start talking to people. One of my favorite things is just trying to find somebody new that's not doing what you're doing, but maybe tangentially related and just having a conversation with them because you never know where you're going to bring value or they're going to bring value to you 
like you said, the syndicating talent is huge. And that's how I found it for this project is uh, I started with my friend that I knew was in the industry, met a new connection through him, just got as much information and gave as much value as I could give to that connection. And that's when we found, you know, like for the Texas wine industry in particular, there's a big gap right now where everybody in it, not everybody, but a lot of folks, it's very passion-driven, like how I started, you know? <laughs> Man, that seems really cool. I really want to go do this. And they just do it. And that's the way a lot of great businesses are started. But if you want to succeed at something like we're doing, where it's at scale, it's mechanized, it's just huge. You've really got to bring the missing parts all together. You can't have good business sense and no talent to grow grapes. You can't have poor business sense and amazing talent in the vineyard. You got to bring all the things together. And I think that's what we've done in our business. I think a lot of our businesses could relate to that. And what you just said there, it's like the person who's the expert at growing the grapes, they're not necessarily the person that understands all the numbers. Or they know, like I was saying, how much a truckload of T-Post costs, but right. how do you amortize that? You know, how are you going to fund it in the most efficient way? Yeah, or just operate a business. I mean, the back end of a business, which is so important... You know, I think a lot of people underestimate just the time it takes and the importance of that and just what it takes to make that happen as well. And again, that may not be the same person that understands how to make that crop produce its best. So anything else about syndicating talent? I wanted to go back to some model stuff. But you know, I just wanted to give you the opportunity though, because it's so important. And, and I think it's so interesting that you highlighted that as far as how you all have syndicated talent. So one of the things you always ask is what's something that you've done to improve your business that somebody else can do and implement in their business. And that for me right now is really looking at myself and our team and getting everybody together on our team to look at themselves in the last two or three years and say, what holes do we have? What holes do we have going forward? Where are we weakest? And really just aggressively going out and talking to new people so that we can try to address those weaknesses. Even if you think it's okay... Well, okay, it's not going to cut it if you want to survive and really dominate in an industry or a niche. So that's what we're doing right now. And that goes back to the syndicating talent. You have to constantly be reassessing yourself and your team and getting everybody on board to, to look at themselves and team to find those weaknesses. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 